0: welcome to meet the author at the apple store Regent street in london would you please welcome our guest moderator erica wagner
1: thank you very much ladies and gentlemen what introduction does margaret atwood honestly need novelist poet critic essayist winner of the Booker Prize, the Canadian Governor General's Award, Chevalier of the Ordre des Arts et des Lettres, Companion of the Order of Canada, I could go on, but I won't, to spare her blushes. I will say that her work, all of it, from novels like The Edible Woman, Cat's Eye, and The Handmaid's Tale, to works of critical rigor like Strange Things, The Malevolent North in Canadian Literature, or the more recent Payback, Debt and the Shadow Side of Wealth, published I may say in 2008, it was an extraordinarily prescient volume, has made her my heroine, and I don't say that lightly. We are privileged to be here with her tonight. She's just published a new collection of stories, Stone Mattress, and I reckon we might talk about that. But we're really here tonight to discuss her extraordinary Mad Adam trilogy, the final book of which... Was published just last year. A little reminder she kicked off with Oryx and Crake, published a decade ago. The Year of the Flood appeared in 2009. The final volume takes its title from the collective name for the grandmasters of an elaborate computer game, Extinctathon, monitored by Mad Adam. Adam named the living animals. Mad Adam names the dead ones. Do you want to play? Oryx and Crake begins with Jimmy, or Snowman, waking to a desolated world. Humankind has been nearly destroyed by a 21st century plague spread through a health supplement, the Bliss Plus pill. Snowman is the human who is left to take care of the Krakers, named after their creator, Called Crake in Extinctathon, but once upon a time he was Glenn, a classmate of Snowman, when they were growing up in the HealthWiser complex where their parents lived and worked for a fortified corporation under the protection of the security service, Corpsicore. The Year of the Flood tells the other side of this story and gives us the view from the Plebe lands the wilderness beyond the corpsey core, where God's gardeners struggle to lead nonviolent lives in a degraded landscape. In the final volume, the survivors of both earlier books await what might be called the final showdown. This trilogy is an extraordinary achievement, vivid, exciting, frightening, a fully realized world that is all too believable as a consequence of our present existence. I'm thrilled to be talking to Margaret Atwood tonight at the Apple Store. Please give her a very warm welcome. Uh, And Margaret and I will talk for a little while, and then you will have a chance to ask some questions, too, before we close. So if we start at the very beginning, how did this trilogy start for you?
0: Well, Erica, <laughs> <laughs> how far back would you like to go?
1: As far back as you would like to as go. As far as
0: I can go. So I did grow up amongst the biologists long, long ago. So I heard this kind of chat at the dinner table. In fact, when I was uh, looking back at my novel Cat's Eye recently, I found a dinner table conversation set in the 1950s in which... They are discussing extinction of species, uh, excess methane production into the atmosphere, um, warming planet. All of the kinds of things that are now front page news were being talked about by the biologists back then. And that was way before we'd opened the great big Pandora's box called um, the DNA. Uh, And, therefore, the ability to genetically modify living species, which we now have done. Uh, So that, that it goes way back to then and to the fact that they kind of hoped that I would turn into a biologist.
1: This is your family. This is my
0: family. And they were always a bit disappointed that I didn't. They thought that I would have made a really good botanist. And if I had gone that route, I would be making your potatoes glow in the dark right now (laughs) that would be me so i've always followed those stories as they have unfolded i've always been interested in them i read a lot of pop science by pop science i mean the kind with the nice pictures where you don't have to do the math yourself so i'm always interested to hear what they've discovered and how they've discovered it but I'm not one of those people doing the discovery. You're not hardcore that 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 takes you back. That's the deep background. Cut to 2001. Cairns, Australia. Or near Cairns, Australia. In the uh, Australian jungle, because it's quite jungly around there. And we were at a place called Cassowary House, where, believe it or not, there were some cassowaries. Cassowaries are great big... Uh, pink, purple, and blue uh, birds that can eviscerate you. And in addition to know that... that about them. Well, I'm telling you. <laughs> don't get too close. I'll be careful. They, they like bananas. And they're also very fond of pies. Pies. So don't leave your pie cooling on the window ledge where there are cassowaries around. So we were th- talking about the cassowaries and also about the red-necked crakes that were poking around in the foliage, and we were talking, as the bird watchers tend to do, about how long uh, these species might have on the planet before they went extinct. And then, uh, then of course, we started discussing our own species and how long we might have on the planet and what our chances were. And uh, that is when I started to write this book.
1: But. Originally, it was just going to be, I believe, a single. It started Originally, as Oryx and Craig. It
0: was one. Originally, it was one, but it ended with a very open, um, at a very open moment, w- at which the reader has to decide. Okay, given the choices that uh, Jimmy the Snowman faces, what would you do? Would you uh, kill the remaining Homo sapiens? there before you to give the new genetically engineered uh, better than us species a chance, or would you, on the other hand, greet them in a friendly fashion and um, pal around with them? So we don't know at the end of Oryx and Craig what he does. And I didn't know what I would do either. And then everybody started asking me what I would do. and. <laughs> I asked them what they would do and we <laughs> it was a standoff. Uh, <laughs> so I also felt that I needed to explore that world further. I not, uh, not only needed to know what he would do, but I also needed to look outside his pretty closed world. Uh, he can only see the rest of society out train windows, basically. And, and I wanted to explore some of the people he has glimpsed on television so the God's gardeners are out there, and book two goes out there, and book three goes even further out there. So it's like three concentric circles. The first two books end at the same moment in time, and the third one goes on Googoo's from that, forward. And I also think also gives you a bigger overview.
1: You, you coined the term, as I recall, if I'm going to try and say it right, simultaneous, <laughs> as that's what I remember, well, as opposed to sequel.
0: It's not a sequel or a prequel. <laughs> it's a si- <laughs> simultaneous. So it comes from that the Victorian novel, which always had the meanwhile chapters. So y- you follow Oliver Twist, but meanwhile, Oliver Twist's evil brother is plotting bad things. So you cut to that storyline, and you're very, very annoyed if at the end those two don't come together. You would be really very annoyed. Uh, so that cutting back and forth, and the first... The first place we see that structure is in the Odyssey, if you think back far enough. You've got Odysseus approaching Ithaca. You've got Penelope standing, standing off the suitors. And just at the moment when she decides it has, she's got to make a decision, he turns up. He turns up just in the nick of time. You've seen this in a lot of Western movies, <laughs> the cavalry riding to the rescue. So that's the simultaneal inaction. And uh, that's what it is.
1: Tell us a little bit um, about the Krakers and how you made them. How you decided to, how
0: How Crake made them. How their creator was thinking when he made them. Uh, He made them as a species of us, but um, engineered to avoid the kinds of characteristics that get us into so much trouble. So first of all, They don't need clothing, and that means that they will never have to grow any cotton or raise any sheep or have a fashion industry uh, (laughs) or worry about being out of fashion or any of those things because they just don't need clothes and they're pretty perplexed by them. They have, therefore, built-in sunblock, which I think would be a good thing, and uh, built-in insect repellent, which I think would be even better. And therefore, they do smell like citrus air freshener, which I think would be quite nice. <laughs> so, <they laughs> so that's innovation number one. Innovation number two, not only are they vegetarian, but better than that, they can eat and digest grass and leaves like rabbits with some of the same side effects for those of you who have ever kept rabbits. Um, so they don't ever need to... Um, be agriculturalists. They don't need to do any work. They don't have any money. They're not aggressive. And the best innovation of all, they will never suffer from romantic rejection. Uh, you can see this was on Craig's mind. They will never suffer from romantic rejection because unlike ourselves, but like other mammals, they mate seasonally. And like other uh, life forms, they turn a special color, or parts of them turn a special color when it's that time, when it's time to do that thing. It's, and they also blue, made it. Yeah, they, they turn blue. Parts of them turn blue. <laughs> it's a good, <laughs> clear color. So it's a clear <laughs> signal. So there's never any uh, no means yes or you know, no confusion. And no, n- you will never have somebody say, I'm not going to go out with you on Friday because I'm washing my hair. On the other hand, they will never write Shakespeare's sonnets. They just wouldn't understand any of that. And since they made in groups like Cats, there's no angst about who's the daddy. They just don't care about, about that. They have some other extra things. For instance, they self-heal through purring And uh, I got some kickback on that when I published the first book, specifically from my older brother, the biologist, who didn't uh, credit this. But science has since vindicated this view, to the extent that if you put cat's purring migraine headaches on your browser, you will find the advice. If you're suffering from a migraine headache, put a purring cat on your head. (laughs) It doesn't say how to keep it there. But I was going <laughs> to say it
1: might just distract you from the migraine well, headache no, trying I don't to keep I don't think the cat so. on it's your it's head. The,
0: it's the <laughs> equivalent of ultrasound. Okay. So apparently there is something to it. And cats will purr when they're frightened and when they're hurt, as well as when they're feeling cozy. And you know that when you're ill, your cat will get up and purr over you. It's like laying on of hands. And you also know that if somebody comes into your house that hates cats, your cat will go right over to that person. Because they're very selfless and generous. And <laughs> they're going over to help out. You know, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yes. So that's, that's what I put in. I gave them the ability to purr and several other useful things.
1: And it's interesting that one of the things that they don't have, because they don't need it, and you talked about that they wouldn't write Shakespeare sonnets. But they, Bluebeard, one of them, Blackbeard, sorry, Blackbeard, was a blue that threw me
0: off. Freudian slip. (laughs) Freudian slip.
1: Learns to write.
0: That's a spoiler. Okay. (laughs) At the beginning, (laughs) uh, their creator, Craig, wanted them not to have the ability to think symbolically because he felt that it led to all kinds of things like wars, kings, religions, and and flags and other things he, he doesn't approve of. So he tried, but he failed, because they do think symbolically. And he also tried to get rid of the music. He's not much of an arts fan, Craig. No. No. Uh, he tried to get rid of the music, but that didn't work either, because it's too deeply ingrained. So it turns out that they can think symbolically, and they also like anybody with a language that's got a past tense and a future tense, a distant past, a distant future, they want an origin story. Like a five-year-old, they're saying, where did we come from? Well, what about before that? Well, what about before that? So Jimmy Snowman has cooked up an origin story for them, and now he's, and now he's stuck with it. <laughs> and now it's building out. <laughs> so yes, they... they uh, pictures pic- pictorial images baffle them at first but then they get the hang of it and once you've got the hang of pictures you know this image means that writing is not going to be very far behind is it
1: no indeed and then i think there's the the fear then that possibly what follows on from writing what is what will
0: what will come of it is dogma? writing always a good thing Well, it's been hotly argued. In fact, the ancient Greeks said writing is really not, we really ought not to have writing, because it will lead to our losing our memories. We will no longer
1: memorize long epic poems. And you know, they were right. They were right. (laughs) Anybody in this room remember any telephone numbers? I think not. I think not.
0: (laughs) That's the problem.
1: Not anymore.
0: So, um, So it does have that effect. And the other effect that writing things down has is, is that things can become solidified. And then instead of a story being fluid, it's set. And then, of course, you're into the interpretations of the words. And pretty soon you're into biblical exegesis. And after that, surely the religious wars are not far behind, because somebody will interpret it this way, and somebody else will interpret it that way. So he wanted to avoid all that. We don't know whether he has avoided it once they get into recording things.
1: You've been quite um, careful in describing these books as speculative fiction as opposed to science fiction. Can you expand a little bit on that?
0: Well, I believe in truth in advertising. So if it says brand flakes on the box, I want there to be brand flakes inside the box. And when it says science fiction on the outside, you usually expect that there will be spaceships, other planets, and and aliens, or the equivalent. Uh, some people want to put it all under science fiction, a term that was not invented until the late 1920s, long after War of the Worlds had appeared. Uh, the French have a handy solution to this because there are two kinds of these sorts of books, and they call um, the kinds descended from Jules Verne, who wrote about. Uh, submarines and going around the world in a balloon. They call those romans d'anticipation. And they know exactly what they mean by that. And the other, if it's on another planet, in a galaxy far, far away, it's science fiction. And so they don't have a problem with it. Uh, some people in the Anglophone world do have a problem because they think you're, you're snotting on the term science fiction. Uh, We also have science fiction fantasy, that's other planets with dragons. With dragons. But you can't have (laughs) speculative fiction with dragons, sorry. So speculative fiction confines itself to could happen, is happening, here, now, us, this planet, pretty soon. Whereas science fiction has much, much broader scope.
1: Tell us a little bit about, because in the space of... Uh, writing these books, some of the things that you speculated upon have actually appeared in the world.
0: Yes, well, uh, I'm not such a smarty pants as to have made these things up out of nothing. I was just following the pop science stories and looking at what people were working on, even though they might not have succeeded in 2001 when I began writing these books. Uh, So I knew that there was uh, there were these unfolding stories and that some of the things were quite close to, to finding solutions and that other things that people thought I had made up really already existed. So the goat that was making spider silk in its milk was happily making that spider silk in 2001 already. Uh, the glow-in-the-dark animals were already with us they've now made more different kinds not just rabbits they've made monkeys they have made different fish and they've made glowing plants as well somebody is proposing them as street lighting you know you could have instead of electric lights or led trees. lights you could have these glowing trees. trees you wouldn't be able to turn them off but uh, you also wouldn't wouldn't have them going out in an electrical storm so all of these things are, are very much under consideration. I admit I stretched it a bit in certain cases, but um, as far as I know for instance nobody's working on the human hair that could be grown on cheap, but now that I've mentioned it they will be. Think how
1: <laughs> and we have the lab <laughs> grown how profitable meat. profitable
0: it would be. We have the what? The lab oh, grown Oh yeah, the lab grown meat. Yeah, that's that been in the works That quite a striking a while. moment. Yes, the, the chicken knobs don't come from lab-grown meat exactly, they come from headless chickens engineered to produce multiple breasts and wings. And somebody is working on that. Um, but I got it originally from an urban legend. And the urban legend was, <laughs> dare I mention this Go urban on. legend, it's an urban legend. It's not true. <laughs> put that out there right now, it's, 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 I don't think it's true. The urban legend was that Kentucky Fried Chicken, Colonel Saunders, had developed a chicken with four drumsticks.
1: <laughs> a quadruped well, chick- chickens. It's not out of the question. No, not out of Just the question. It hasn't
0: happened yet. But, but now that it's out there, wait for it.
1: You heard it first <laughs> here at the Apple store. One thing, you know, talking about uh, other things that you have done with these remarkable novels, I know you as an extremely energetic person. You went on tour with The Year of the Flood. I was privileged to hear The Year of the Flood in St. James's Piccadilly. Tell us a little bit about that experience. You and heard that the St.
0: James' Piccadilly version. Yes, I okay. did. Okay. So Tell us how it worked. So let me set the scene for you. It was uh, going to be 2009. And that means that 2008 had just happened. And that was the year of the big financial meltdown. So there, were, there was a lot of angst and panic everywhere, but also in the world of publishing. So I thought, uh, this isn't going to go very well. I think I'll <laughs> build a website myself. And uh, that is, incidentally, how I got onto Twitter, because the people helping me build the website said, you have to have a Twitter feed. And I said, what's that? And they said, it's really easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's how that's that, how that came about. So I, th- I said, I thought, well, why not um, do the website and do the book launch as a combination um, music, musical, dramatic, Book launch with a bird, uh, a bird conservation awareness subtext. So we did that, and how we did it was we made a script, and let's—I don't know why I'm saying we—I made a script. (laughs) (laughs) The royal we. Me and my evil (laughs) (laughs) twin (laughs) made a script, (laughs) and we, I. Went to the people in, in England first because the England are always pretty English are always pretty peppy about anything dramatic. You may have noticed that indeed, um, and they've all they're all pretty good at it. You know, they're and pick any, pick any pick any child. they're going to be good at it. I think they do it in school, and and said, okay, so we're going to team up with eight different festivals in eight different cities, and it's up to them how they produce it. We'll send the script. I will turn up as the narrator and they will pick the three actors needed, they will pick and rehearse the singing group and do it however they want, with costumes, without costumes, uh, the interpretation, the direction will be up to them. And that was actually amazing because I would turn up on the day not knowing what they were gonna be doing. And sometimes what they did was amazingly wonderful, and other times I thought, the audience is going to throw us out. This is. <laughs> It's <laughs> really not very pulled together, but, <laughs> but some of them were extraordinary, and we managed to record one of them. We then went and did it in North America and in Canada and ultimately in Japan, uh, with some of it being in Japanese. Wow. So that, that worked actually p- pretty well, but I admit that it was odd, and, and it was only possible because the God's Gardeners had hymns, and my agents... Partner had ended up composing music to these hymns, hymns because he, he's a musician and composer and raised as a Lutheran and therefore stuck into hymns.
1: Had the background.
0: Yeah, so he did them all, and I said, "This is great, Orville, but but you know, hymns have to be singable by people like me." He he didn't always stick to that. I can <laughs> sing some of them. I can sing the Mole Song, for instance, but uh, some of the others. You'd need a somewhat more trained voice.
1: But for those who missed that show, now I think we're going to have an HBO version. Oh,
0: the HBO version. Well, the one that we did as, as the show was just the middle book. Yes. So the HBO Darren Aronofsky thing under development right now, Darren Aronofsky of Black Swan and more recently, Noah.
1: So a man who knows about floods.
0: A Man Who Knows About <laughs> Floods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that may have been the attraction. Uh, yes, A Man Who Knows About Floods. And uh, that will be the entire series. So the whole thing. And it will be a television series rather than a film because I don't think you could get this into a film. It would be very uh, squashed.
1: Yes, I imagine so.
0: I'm I'm quite keen on the the new... TV series thing, of course, I, I get the boxed sets because I'm, I'm just never up at the time of night when these things no, are no, originally no. broadcast.
1: Quite right. Well, I think at this point, um, we have a little bit of time for questions from you guys. I'm sure you have some. Raise your hand, and I will call on you. Yes? Um, I was wondering, with regards to The Handmaid's Tale, um, if you'd actually ever spoken to any readers for whom um, the elements of the book are very much a reality, so perhaps in countries such as Iran or Saudi Arabia, and what their perceptions of the book have been.
0: I've spoken to a lot of readers over the years uh, from many parts of the world, including the United States. And uh, I would say that one of the places where the book resonates the most is, uh, of course, in, in uh, in, con- in countries like Iran. I don't know whether you s- read that book called Reading Lolita in Tehran, which is really very good. Um, so tho- those sorts of countries, but more surprisingly to people who might not have thought about it, in the United States. And some people make the mistake of thinking that I got these various details just from Middle Eastern countries, but actually got them from around the world and from history in many, many different places and um, many different cultures. So these are, not, these are not motifs that are confined to one place on the planet. They've been around for a long time, all different mixes and matches. And they are with us today in surprising places such as Texas.
1: Thanks. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you for giving me such engaging books to read. Um, They've been amazing. My question was, you've written so many different types of stories. Um, As an author, how do you decide on the story that you want to write? And is it always obvious? Or do you have to pick from a lot of possibilities that are roaring around your head?
0: Oh, yes. A lot of possibilities are roaring around in my head. Uh, And there's usually three that I'm thinking about at any one time and as a rule i start working on the one that seems the easiest and most conventional and then i get bored with that and i <laughs> and i pick something that i never tell my publishers about because they would say are you mad <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they 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 do always kind of want you to be writing the the last book you wrote you know or several books back and I even had one of them say to me, please, please, stop writing about this. Stop writing about the future. You know, c- can't you write about the 19th century again? <laughs> <laughs> Something you know, <laughs> cozy. And I think people like the historical novels because we know what happened. We know how it came out, as it were. So, it, so although it's filled with tension when you're reading it, you know that uh, it came out. Okay.
1: The world did not end y- No
0: it didn't. It didn't. Here Things we kept are. going, yes. So so it is always a bit of a it is always a bit like that and, and sometimes you know immediately, which I did with Oryx and Craig and, and other times you try something out, doesn't work, um, you throw it away, or you try something out, it's not working, but you know you still want to write it, so you, you approach it in a different way. You might change the tense. You might change the person from first to third, from third to first. Uh, if you're really daring, to second, uh, and y- you just s- sometimes you just haven't found the right door, and that can go ro- on for quite a while. But you know that there's still there's still something there you want to write about. You just don't know how to get into it. My inspirations. <laughs> I love I love people thinking that there are any. You know, <laughs> it's great. Uh, OK, so maybe I'm not too comfortable with that word. I mean, it, it does kind of imply that this lightning bolt comes out of the <laughs> sky and hits you in the head, or that the muse appears, or uh, something like that. And that's not how it happens. I, m- I think that anybody working in a field, so if it's music, you're going to get musical ideas. If it's science, you're going to get scientific ideas. If it's writing, you're going to get ideas about writing. So part of it is just immersing yourself in that and working with the material. And if you'd like to read a book about that, it's by Lewis Hyde, H-Y-D-E, and it's called The Gift. And it's about how people work with the gifts that they have been given. Because you can be given a gift and just disregard it. Uh, Or you can be given quite a small gift and work it up into quite a big one. Mozart didn't become Mozart because he refused to do his piano practicing. You know, he put in the work. (laughs) So putting in the work, I would say, is nine-tenths of what we think of as inspiration. Uh, And some of it is just doing things that don't succeed. And failure is very instructive In fact, you you almost need to have it uh, for all sorts of reasons. Number one, because most of the things that human beings do fail, so you might as well, you know, make yourself acquainted with human life. But also, you learn what to do, uh, what not to do next time. The first novel I ever wrote, I wrote at the age of seven, and it was about an ant. The heroine was an ant. And I started at the beginning. Not much happened. It was an egg. <laughs> you know, not a lot of conflict there. <laughs> <laughs> then it became a larva. Larvas don't move around. Nothing Nothing happened. Yeah, exactly. This is a the problem. <laughs> then it became a pupa. And that's even more inert. You know, Nothing going on there. And not until the very end of the book did the thing have legs. And then there could be some action, and there was quite a snappy scene at the end. But uh, <laughs> I think the I think the lesson there is have something happen <laughs> right at the beginning of the book. <laughs> so when I'm and so that's learning through doing. You know, okay, maybe next time don't start with the egg.
1: <laughs> Isn't the very beginning of Mad Adam? Egg? It's a
0: different kind <laughs> of egg.
1: <laughs> a very different kind I'm of egg. I'm just saying.
0: Yes, I have been interested in eggs for a Indeed very long you time, have. And, I, I, and since a child. But
1: who else? This lady here in the second row. Um, with stone mattress, why did you decide to return to the short story form?
0: With stone mattress, why did I decide to return to the short story form? Um. I I think people think there's a lot more intentional decision-making going on than there actually is. So you find yourself doing something because that's what appeals to you at the time. And uh, there had been some motifs that I'd always, or some little bits and snippets that I'd always uh, wanted to work on. And I started uh, working on them and um that things just grew out of things just grew out of that. And we do have a very, very special guest with us in this room right now, and that would be Rob Delaney, who's right over there. And he very kindly reads one of these stone mattress stories on the audiobook. He reads a story called The Freeze Dried Groom. And I think the uh the idea of um storing dead people in various places, has been with me since <laughs> <laughs> since a child, when there was quite a famous murderess in, in Canada called Mrs. Dick. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine what went on in the schoolyard, um, because she had cut Mr. Dick up <laughs> in <laughs> quite a few pieces and, and put him in a trunk. She, she got caught. I won't repeat the joke that emerged that (laughs) event but um, so that those kinds of things it's it's somehow not um if if it's a if it's a man murdering a woman that's kind of what you expect and that didn't come out the way I intended it Um, (laughs) it's it's not as peculiar as a woman murdering a man And in fact, the incidence is much lower of women murdering men, so you get quite interested in the ones that do, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) It's more shocking, exactly, it's more shocking. And they they seem really quite far, quite a lot further outside the general run of, of affairs. And also, they have to be more cunning because they're not usually overpowering the other person so they they frequently in the 19th century they were they were frequently poisoners, they resorted to poison. Bad them. Oh. Men men did sometimes too. There are some famous male 19th century. Po- Why am I talking about this? It's
1: quite. <laughs> 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 I we mean, like uh, to talk about.
0: I suppose cutting yeah. out corpses so and a poisoners. Of, uh, there there are a couple of murderous events in stone mattress, but what really kicked it off was I wasn't about it. Uh, in the Arctic. And we were sailing along and we, we did find a field of stromatolites and stromatolite transliterated is exactly stone mattress. That's what it means. And these, these are fossils of the plant life that gave rise to our oxygen 1.9 billion years ago. And then we started talking as one does on a boat about how you would murder somebody on the boat <laughs> and, and get away with it. And my partner, his name is Graham Gibson, has a devious criminal mind, <laughs> makes him a bit hard to deal with uh, <laughs> this old matters because he just says things like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where did you put it? I don't know. Um, so he had it all figured out quite swiftly that you wouldn't be able to murder the person on the boat, you couldn't just toss them off because in the Arctic it's light all the time and there are always people going around looking for whales and bears and things like that. So they would see you doing it. And you wouldn't be able to store them on the boat either for obvious reasons. Um, so you'd have to do it on shore. And that's hard in the Arctic too because there aren't any forests, no shrubbery much. So you would have to look for an opportune way. No cover, an opportune way of doing it where people couldn't see you, which is pretty hard. But then you would have to make it appear that the person was still on the boat. And that's quite easy. Read on. (laughs) Uh, So by the time it would be discovered, at the end of the trip, when everybody gets their passport back, that Bob had not collected his passport, nobody would know where he was. They would think he had just maybe fallen off the night before, because they would have thought he was on the boat that whole time. And it was facilitated by the fact that there were five people called Bob on the boat. So when you've got five Bobs to work with, you kind swi- of switch them around, and people don't know that one's missing. So th- like that. So I started writing that on the boat to amuse the fellow passengers, especially the Bobs. who <laughs> Very alert, <laughs> <laughs> and they all wanted to know how it was going to come out. <laughs> so I I finished it, and then uh, other stories accumulated around similar types of um,
1: nefarious. Well, things that always
0: things that I had always kind of wondered why nobody had written a story about them. I always have wanted to write a story about a cut off hand ever since reading uh, The Beast with Five Fingers, which is the classic uh, of its kind. So I did. (laughs) Did I ever read... Oh, The Monkey's Paw. Yes, it's a short story and also a play, and it's very good. Yes, I challenged a website called Book Riot to collect the ten most uh, prominent Ambulatory body part, um, <laughs> body parts from literature.
1: And that was they one of them. The that was one paw. of them.
0: Monkey's paw was one of them. So they tend to be hands and eyes. Sometimes the tell the telltale heart would certainly count. They're never feet.
1: <laughs> there's there's an opening.
0: There are footprints, ghostly footprints, but, but not no an actual foot, foot. Sort of stomping into <laughs> your room. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Th- that wouldn't work. But the hand really does, yeah.
1: Very good. I think, I think Mr. Delaney has a question. But,
0: or maybe just scratching.
1: Hi there. <laughs> <laughs> just stretching it out. <laughs> Hi there. Um, I, I'm curious. I, I like reading at the end of your books, uh, at the end of your novels, there'll be a lot of, uh, you know, you'll thank all the people who helped you with research. And for some of them, like the blind assassin, there's a tremendous amount of research. Whereas with like stories in the stone mattress, you know, you, uh, as wonderful as they are, they might come to mind fully formed or you, you might not go to the library 25 times for one of those stories what what does your process look like when you're writing something that relies on a tremendous amount of research in addition to your desire to tell a particular sort of flavor of story when you are in research mode are you also writing and I I guess I'm just wondering how
0: it works yeah what is the process like for a research heavy
1: book that at its heart is still you know a beautiful story but is loaded with lots of facts
0: Okay, so the, the, the one that took the most research was Alias Grace, because it is based on a real double murder that did take place in the middle of the 19th century. And it was written about at the time, but it was written about in, a con- in contradictory ways. If you remember the O.J. Simpson case, so some people thought really thought he did it, other people really thought he didn't do it. When, it, when there's a double crime, Uh, or when there's a crime involving two people, one of them being a man, the other being a woman, opinion about the man is usually pretty set, but opinion about the woman is usually very divided. So either she's been his victim, he's forced her into helping him, Uh, she was frightened, she was afraid, Uh, he threatened to kill her and all of these things, Um, or or she's the femme fatale who talked him into doing it and she's behind the whole thing, and that's what happened with Grace Marks. So I um, I did have to do quite a bit of research. Number one, I had to find out something about the murder victim, Mr. Kinnear. There there was a Mr. Kinnear in the graveyard where Mr. Kinnear was supposed to be, but it was the wrong Mr. Kinnear. That Mr. Kinnear would have been about 75. And uh, since it was a steamy sex quadrangle, much as we would like to believe <laughs> that, that that would be a possibility. It wasn't, it wasn't him. The real Mr. Kinnear, who got murdered, was in that graveyard, but his marker had been removed. So this, this took quite a lot of digging. I had to get a friend of mine in Scotland to... <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't...
1: <laughs>
0: so to speak. Oops. So to speak, right. Um, I got a friend of mine in Scotland to find the real Mr. Kinnear and that was pretty interesting too because in Burke's peerage, which is uh, where you get yourself put if you're highfalutin, um, the family had listed that Mr. Kinnear as having died in the year in which he in fact emigrated to Canada. Oh gosh, What does that say? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it says a couple of things, but never mind about the Canada part. The family it, it was shameful. it was it was really a shameful thing to be murdered. So they didn't want that recorded in Burke's peerage. You can see that they wouldn't. So m- my process is a lot more like Alice in Wonderland. So verdict first, trial afterwards. I write it first, and then I try to find out whether um, what I've intimated is, is accurate or not. And if it isn't, then I have to change it. For instance, in one of my stories, I thought I remembered what the Brownies sang as they danced around the cardboard mushroom uh, so I wrote that down, and, but then I went and checked the Brownie handbook, and I'd gotten it a bit wrong, so that kind of thing. And w- with the Grace Marks story, I wrote a dandy scene in which she sees her, her, her co-accused being hanged, but uh, then I found out she wasn't actually there. So I had, had to, to rewrite it like that. The, the problem with research is that you can get very, very bogged down in it. And you can also overload the story, so that fascinating those things as these things are, they they clog the action too much. It's a it's a it's a problem.
1: We have time for one more. This lady at the back, I think. I I was just wondering um, to return to The Handmaid's Tale, with it being written in a time of um, well, the low Cold War period. How much of an effect did the nuclear referent have on the on your writing and the themes within the novel?
0: How, how much did what have?
1: Say How that much again? of an effect did the nuclear referent and um, the Cold War have, oh, have the on Cold the Cold War?
0: Um, I don't think it's really exactly about that, um, but the entire 20th century had quite an effect on it. Um, because I am one of those people who does believe you should never say it can't happen here, and you you only need about 33 percent of a population um, to pull pull off a real um, a real coup, such as the one that happened in in Germany in 1932. Uh, so, I'm, I think my my interest was in um, dictatorships, and. How they operate, and what kind of what kind of thing might happen should the United States go to totalitarian mode I, I tell it from a female point of view, which makes people think that only women are affected, but that's not true. Everybody in that society is affected as everybody always is affected uh, in a totalitarianism. We launched the film of that book in West Germany and then in East Germany in 1989, which was the first year you could have done that because that was the year the wall came down. And we showed it in West Germany, and people were talking about the director who was, in fact, a German. So it was all about um, artistic matters and style and his previous works and this sort of uh, kind of filmic talk. Then we went over to East Germany and showed it there. And it was a completely different reaction. And the reaction there was quite a lot more solemn. And what they said was, this was our life. They didn't mean that they had the outfits. They meant that the feeling that you had to be silent, that you couldn't trust anybody, um, that that was what they had experienced. And I don't know whether you saw that film called The Lives of Others. That was very accurate, so I would I started that that book in West Berlin because I was living there in 1984, so i I think that ambience, that atmosphere, um, not that not nuclear things so much as cold War things and um, visiting societies in which people had to be very, very careful about what they said. And you had to be careful about what you said about them, because that those, were da- that those were very dangerous situations. Less so in Poland. Poland was already pretty wide open at that time, but East Germany and Czechoslovakia very uh, clamped down upon. So yes, I guess that's what you were getting at, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that.
1: I'm afraid that that is all we have time for, although we could go on chatting all night. Please join me in thanking Margaret Atwood for a wonderful conversation.